session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolokwin. I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Going to get into the book from last week because on Monday night's show I had a guest. A big thank you again to Payam Banifaz, comedian actor. You've probably seen his videos on Instagram. Um, had to had a nice sit down with him as he shared about his own experience going into the arts in an Iranian family and also his own challenges of figuring that out. And I thought it was quite interesting to hear his perspective and his experience. So I uh, appreciated him sharing that with us and look forward to having him back on the show sometime soon. So let's get into the books. Uh, the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next week's show, probably Monday night, is Rethinking Consciousness by Michael S. A. Graziano. Rethinking Consciousness, a scientific theory of subjective experience. And I'd heard a bit about this book and uh, I've done several books on consciousness, find the topic fascinating and always try to understand or learn more about it here, different perspectives. So look forward to reading this and sharing it with you next week. Again, that's Rethinking Consciousness by Michael S. A. Graziano. The book of the week from last week that I will talk about today is System Air, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot by Rob Reich, Mehran Sahamid, and Jer- Jeremy M. Weinstein. Um, and so this book t- took a look and it comes from three different authors with three different perspectives. Uh, one is a philosopher, one is a computer scientist, and one more in policy. Um, looking at how tech, how we got to where we are now with uh, big tech and the tech companies, and also some thoughts on how we can do better and how we can, as the subtitle says, how we can reboot. Um, and so it's interesting looking at their perspectives on how we got here it's very easy to say something is all good or all bad, and I tend to go away from those types of arguments or thoughts. So, you know, social media is all bad, or te- big tech, it's all bad, or it's good, and we should completely get out of their way and let them do whatever they want. Same things we hear about free speech, for example, something I, I might touch on. They talked about it in the book. Um, but really, the truth is more nuanced than that. It's not just that all tech is bad and all the tech companies are bad. And it's not that they're all good and we have to just get out of their way. There is much more to look at than just that. So there is an interesting uh, argument they make early in the book, which I think is interesting about optimization and how engineers in general and then in tech, there's this mindset of just optimizing everything. And they even share uh, the, the story of this company. I remember when it came out, probably about 10 plus years ago, I forgot exactly when it was, called Soylent, which was... This, uh, this young man decided that eating and food takes a lot of time. So he created this type of a drink really that had all the essential ingredients and nutrients that a human needs to survive and stay healthy. And you could just drink this liquid. It was kind of like a powder that you'd mix with water and then you could drink it 
every day, and now you don't have to think about food, and it seemed like it optimized eating in a way. Uh, even there was, I think, an article in the newspaper around that time called The End of Food. But then the problem was that we optimized something that didn't need to be optimized or that people also enjoyed experiencing. And so we see this happening in a lot of things in life where people just try to become more efficient. And we think if something is more efficient, it's good. And we look for these life hacks and shortcuts. And there are places where that can be helpful, but people often take that to an extreme. Even I see this with relationships where there's this sense of, well, can I talk to my partner for five minutes and that's enough? Or can we somehow reduce the time we spend but still get the same impact? But a lot of things in life are about the process, about the experience. Uh, some people watch TV shows at two and a half times the speed. You might be listening to this podcast right now at uh, two times the speed if you're listening to it on a podcast. Um, but especially things like TV shows and movies, I find it interesting when people watch them fast or faster than they are recorded or made because it's about experiencing what the people go through. And so there's this mindset that it's about finishing a show or getting through the show uh, when you would think that it's more about experiencing the show, enjoying it. So if you watched two shows because uh, you saw them twice as fast but you didn't really enjoy the show, what are you really doing there? And so I think that's the topic they bring up is what is about making things efficient or optimizing things? And we have to always look at what is lost when you do that. So similar to if we take away the enjoyment of food when you create a product that's just a drink that gets you the nutrients, what else? where else do we see this happen? And we see this happening in tech as well. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, point that's brought up and it does bring up this overall conception of when we're creating technology sometimes we just think progress means making things faster coming up with something new which of course it includes that but we always have to look at is it benefiting society human beings the human race in some way and also what negative effects is it having just because something is a new technology that didn't exist before doesn't mean that's good and doesn't mean it has to just be unleashed on the public or unleashed on people because of that. And even they share about um, CRISPR technologies and gene editing and genetics, which I don't know so much about, but that some of the, the scientists that actually came up with it decided to put a moratorium, put a hold on working with it because they saw the potentials for misuse and issues that could come up. And so this could be seen as, oh, we're getting in the way of progress, but Progress has to be tempered with what the effects are and what they can be. Even we've seen this with nuclear weapons where there was this arms race to create these new things, of course, for power and to try to dominate the other side, but it could have led to the end of the world in a quite literal sense. It could have been the end of the human race several times we got to that point and still in a way have that risk because of those weapons existing. So when we're trying to optimize something, or make things more efficient or advance something, there's sometimes this mindset that if it's more efficient, if it's more powerful, if it's whatever fill in the blank is, that's always better because you're optimizing. But that's not necessarily the case. We always have to look at the human impact. And so we see that with, with tech and especially with things like social media, where if the goal is just get more eyeballs on the screen, well, that doesn't necessarily mean it's good for individuals and it's good for society. And so we're seeing those negative impacts where people are spending too much time and distracting themselves online. Or also 
affecting themselves negatively, for example, by comparing themselves with other people. We know that if people are depressed and they go to social media, they feel worse about themselves because they're having a negative experience of their own life and feeling down and low about it. And then they see the curated and edited and photoshopped versions of other people's lives and they feel worse. They say, see how good everyone has it but me. I'm the only loser here and everyone else is doing all right. So when big tech comes in and creates these products and just thinks, well, how do we become more efficient? And of course, it's also about making more profit. And this is where also uh, my thoughts about capitalism. I talked about Thomas Piketty's book, um, Brief History of Equality, a couple weeks ago, that when capitalism loses sight of the effect it has on people and just thinks the market will figure everything out, that to me is a fantasy that we have, that just the markets will solve the problems or won't create their own problems. I don't think that works. And so we, we see the arguments in the book that these authors make involve a nuance of there has to be regulation, there has to be ways that the government and also citizens get in the way and try to understand what's going on to make changes. And of course, progress has to be made as well. So we have to find some type of balance. But right now, the technologists, the people who are making the technology and the CEOs of these companies have uh, the power and they are not necessarily using it in the best interests of the people. So we need to shift those balances. Now, it's interesting this book, I think, came out last year, but whenever it came out, of course, could not have known about the purchase of uh, Twitter by Elon Musk, which just happened in the past few days. And it's uh, hard to know exactly what impact that is going to have. My primary concern overall is that when we isolate power in the hands of a few, we end up with problems. That's what we see in tech in general, that there's just a few big players, really, when you look at it. Um, Facebook, which, well, now it's Meta, but owns Instagram and WhatsApp. Uh, we have um, Google, which also has YouTube, and then Amazon, and then Apple is one of the other ones, and um, and. Uh, Amazon, I don't know if I mentioned, or Microsoft. But there's a few big ones, and they really have almost all the power, and that usually creates issues and problems, and they become too big to fail, and they also become too big to stop. They have so much power and very much too big to compete to, which is something that we see. So is Twitter being in private hands of one individual? Of course, it's not that he's going to be running it from A to Z himself, but is that a good thing? Overall, I think it's not a good direction, um, but we shall see what happens. But it was interesting that I was reading this book and some things related to those kinds of issues of who owns and what happens comes up. And then this story was in the news uh, of Elon Musk purchasing um, one of the biggest platforms that we do have. So uh, the author suggests ways that we need to uh, make things better. I thought it was interesting some of the suggestions they had, including that we have to um, include ethics in the ways that we train are uh, software engineers, coders, people that go into the, these fields, uh, as they say we have in other fields, like the medical field. There is a code of ethics. There is a group or bodies that help enforce norms. So what I shared about that CRISPR technology, um, there was a Chinese biologist who did research using that and presented it, and he was really shunned and had faced lots of consequences because of that. So it was not okay what he did because he violated those norms 
those values, um, the ethics that had been created by the community. And these things will always have issues. Anytime we give power to even a group, then there will be things that happen. Just like when we try to regulate the kinds of things that people can put online, there's going to be disagreement, there will be overreach, there's going to be bias, it's going to be a challenging process, but it doesn't mean we just give up on trying to regulate things. So that's one of the things they bring up near the end of the book is we need to have that. We also need um, to rein in the power of, of the companies that they don't have so much sway. So the governments have to be involved in that way to regulate what's um, going on. So uh, they call it checking corporate power. And they also mention that we have to empower the citizens and the institutions that we have to know more about what's going on. So reading a book like this for me gave me some of that, but that we need an informed citizenry to make decisions if something is on the ballot, uh, to make the decisions that we think benefit us and to impact what's going on and to not just think we have no impact on it. So we have to increase the impact that citizens can have, but of course citizens themselves have to empower themselves by knowing what's going on. And for most of us, we don't really know what's happening. And so there also is a lot of calls for more transparency that they talk about as well. So, you know, the book was an interesting one. I, I don't read much on tech and those things. So I wanted to inform myself a bit more about these types of situations. And this was a great book on that. And uh, I'd highly recommend you check it out. Again, that is System Air, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot by Rob Reich, Mehran Sahami, and Jeremy M. Weinstein. Let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So, uh, talked about the book System Arab, which was about tech and big tech and how we can do things differently. And uh, I don't know if it was intentional, but I watched a show that is relevant to this book and I wanted to talk about it and um, before I begin I, there could be some spoilers I'll try not to do that I think it's a really good show Severance on Apple TV um, so I, I will talk about it if you haven't seen it you want to see it it's up to you I'll try to be careful not to spoil too much I'll really talking more about the premise not getting into the details of the show so the premise of the show which I, I, I found interesting although have some issues about the uh, execution of it, which I'll explain. So people essentially, this that severance, the reason the title of the, the show is that pe there's people that can voluntarily choose to completely separate their experience of their home life and their work life. So what that means is that when they go to work, when they're in the elevator, they've already had a chip implanted into their brain so that when they are in the elevator, they switch the chip, so now they switch to their work experience, which means they don't remember anything from their life in general or who they are. And then similarly, when they switch back to their home life or who they are outside of work, they don't remember work at all. They don't even know being there. They have no memory of it at all, of that experience of being at work. It's just completely split off in that way. So it's severed. And so you might wonder, why would anyone want to do this? Um, one of the main characters of the show early on we learned that he recently lost his wife his wife has died and so it's a way for him to essentially shut off his brain for eight hours a day so he's not thinking about it which itself is interesting that's something we often try to do we try to avoid the pain but really that doesn't lead to healing 
it just might try might make us feel we're bearing the pain a little bit better but actually we tend to do better when we face the pain and go through it so as i was saying the premise itself as is often the case with sci-fi types of shows or movies you have some basis in science and then some of it might deviate a bit sometimes it's something that doesn't exist yet in science Um, but here the issue i have is that when we look at separating our experience in this way if there was this chip that could switch the memories you have access to um, so much of what we experience or our brain is unconscious or we're not aware of it so that's what i was trying to understand how that would make sense or how that would work so much of what we do day to day or what the brain does is unconscious how do you figure that out in this sense that if you experience something at home or if you learn something at work let's say even procedurally or affected you in some way would it completely be gone and we see some instances where maybe there is some bleeding happening there i actually read an article by um or that interviewed the neuroscience or neurosurgeon they consulted for years before they created the show and then actually uh it wasn't planned but when they had to do a scene of showing how they implant the chips the neurosurgeon himself uh, did some acting for the first time by playing that character. Of course, not much of a stretch as a neurosurgeon, but uh, it also showed that they wanted to be more accurate. So it was good to have an actual neurosurgeon performing that part or showing how that would be done. But anyway, um, but I was surprised that he said this technology might not be so far away. Uh, We're understanding things about the brain and how memory works. But for me, it's still um, kind of puzzling to think of how can we actually separate so much because so much of what we have in our brain is something that is uh, unconscious. So even if you can't make conscious memories or those don't stick, how does that exactly work? But the premise to me is still very interesting. When you see the show, I think they did a great job of creating this world that you you escape into. Um, But I hope you will check out the show if you haven't already. And nothing I've said I think would mess up your experience of that. But just this mindset that we try to switch off our experience we don't i don't think anyone listening has a chip in their brain to do that but we find ourselves doing it in so many ways to avoid experiencing our life in in some ways and so avoidance is not a all of our defense mechanisms can have some value at some times let's say for example you're waiting to get a medical test back and there's nothing you can do in that time. If you can distract or avoid thinking about it, that's good. There's no need for you to keep thinking about what if it's this, what if it's that, what if it's this, what if it's that. You might need a few thoughts to collect about what would I do in these two cases, but even that you don't want to go too far because you don't know what you need to do. But sometimes there's some preparations you might have to make, but in general, you have to just wait. Or you apply to some school, or you're waiting for some academic test results. In those cases, actually, distraction or avoidance are good. You don't get anything from thinking about the problem. And even in general, sometimes when we have an issue we can do something about, it can be important to be able to shut off thinking about it at times and doing something else and coming back to it. So there is some benefit to it, and sometimes it can make sense to avoid or not uh, feel something or think about something. So this idea of being able to actually sever your experience. The problem is that we as we do with essentially any defense mechanism, use it too much, overuse it, and don't recognize how it's harming us. 
And so we avoid in a lot of ways, and technology is one of those big ways that we avoid it, or even watching shows, like I was saying, if you watch this show, we often can overdo that. It can be okay for a little bit, but we avoid experiencing what we are we're going through. And so I see this as a therapist on a daily basis where people come into therapy to talk about what they're going through. And even in therapy, they can be avoiding talking about the things that are really difficult. People have this mindset that, well, if it's about therapy, you know, going to therapy to work on your issues, why wouldn't someone say everything? But it's easier said than done. One, you can feel uncomfortable just sharing with anyone, even if it is a therapist. Of course, hopefully your therapist makes you feel comfortable, but even that could be an issue. You might not feel comfortable with them. People also don't want to face things themselves. So it's not just about sharing it with someone else. We are often in denial and don't want to accept or face our own realities because they can make us feel a certain way. So we avoid thinking about it or we don't want to to think about that. You know, a similar thing could be said, someone goes to school and they don't try their best. And you say, well, you're going to school or you're paying for it. Wouldn't you try your best? But people always don't. And no one really is probably trying 100% their best. Those things, it's easier said than done to just say, well, you're going there to learn. You should be totally working your hardest. Or if you're going to therapy, you should be 100% open. But as a therapist, I see that people have different degrees of how open they are to their own experience. And not only that, I see how much in their day-to-day as they express what they go through, they avoid their own experience. So they don't get in touch with what they are going through or what's happening to them day-to-day. Because of that discomfort, we usually should expect that if you're avoiding a feeling, it's not because it feels really good, it's because it doesn't feel good. It's not pleasant, so you don't want to feel it. This is also why people tend to avoid meditation. People will say things like they don't have time. Almost always time is an excuse we make for something we're avoiding for some other reason. Or they'll say they do it, but they get bored. And boredom is a word that we use kind of like laziness, but in a different way. But it usually means anxiety more than it means we're actually bored and not enjoying something. So I hear people say this about Uh, their social anxiety before they realize it's social anxiety they say you know I really don't have a good time at parties and then when we look a little bit closer for some people it's not that they don't like parties or they'd rather be home they'd like to enjoy the party but they get nervous they don't know what to do who to talk to they get uncomfortable so in that moment when it's feeling nervous or being home and comfortable they prefer being at home but actually what they really want if they looked closer is they'd like to be able to be at the party and have a good time and interact and and enjoy the company. But because that's hard for them, they choose being home. So it's not that they're bored, they're anxious. And the same thing happens when people meditate and say they get bored. It's usually not that they're bored, it's that they get uncomfortable facing their feelings, so they want to go away from it. And one of the things that people have to overcome or one of the myths we have about meditation, because we think of it as this type of zen, relaxed, Uh, you know, enlightened kind of a thing, we imagine that if we meditate, we're just going to feel good. When actually, uh, the reality is that if you meditate, you're going to get in touch with your feelings and your thoughts, which are not all good. There's going to be ones that are not pleasant, things you wish you weren't thinking about or caring about, feelings you wish you didn't have, and also feelings that don't feel good to have, that can be uncomfortable or painful. But if we want to have a more connected experience with ourselves, we have to open ourselves to all of the things. We can't just say, I only want to feel good and I want to be connected to myself. You have to be open to feeling those things. So people avoid feeling it because 
it might not feel good. And because of that, they avoid that. So meditation is one of the things that people avoid, but in general, just being in touch with our feelings, even being in touch with the people around us. We'd rather they don't tell us how they're feeling because then we're going to have to feel our own feelings about it or get into that. And people avoid things. So I see avoidance as one of the biggest, if not biggest, defense mechanisms that we use as human beings. And we're always looking for ways to avoid things. And so when technologies come along that facilitate avoiding, they become very popular. They do very well. So going back to what I was saying in the first segment, looking at is a technology good, we can't just look at if it's efficient or if it makes money. We want to look at the human impact. We do want to see how these types of technologies are affecting us by making it easier for us to avoid. So we can't blame them for the avoiding we do, or we can't say we cannot uh, you know, we could we could still avoid it if we wanted to, but we have to recognize that we have to be aware of what we're putting out there and how it's going to affect individuals, that we are aware of that. And as individuals, we want to be aware of that too. So one thing I highly recommend, you know, in this book, they mentioned something about this too. It goes back to this black and white type of mindset to completely avoid social media. So some people say, close all your social media accounts or delete them. And that can work. And if you want to do that, great. I wouldn't encourage you to get on there if you're not. But for many people, this won't be realistic. And what could be important is to limit or be mindful of how much you're using your phone and social media. So don't go cold turkey because you probably won't do it for long and it won't last. But see if you can limit how much you're on there. Those things have an impact too. Because one of the things that social media does is they try to just capture your attention and make you forget you're even on there. They want you to zone out, which is what all of us have likely experienced at some point that you're looking on things and it's not just about you have a feed, you also have discover and other places and things just keep coming at you, right? There's almost like this, it's not that you search for something you can, but things are just thrown at you now based on the algorithm of what you seem to be interested in and enjoy. And now you just watch little videos or short clips or pictures and they come at you nonstop. And most people have had this experience that they think they're just going to go on and check for a minute and then they're on for 30 minutes, an hour, and, and don't realize how the time is gone. So setting limits on your social media and device use, to me, is something very important to think about. Don't necessarily make it black or white. People, you know, they go through these periods and they put a post, I'm going to step away for a while, I'm not going to be on here for a little while, and that's okay. Those can be good too for some people. But if we look at more of a long-term type of a solution or um, type of a result for ourselves, I think it's much better to consider how you can limit those types of things, whether you create certain windows where you don't at all look at your phone or look at social media, or after a certain time, you don't, which can have multiple benefits. One is helping you get to sleep earlier. Looking at screens can be bad for us as far as the blue light and things they emit, which can affect your circadian rhythm, which allows how you prepare to sleep, your brain and your body get ready to sleep. Those are just some things to think about. Uh, but again, if you have seen the show Severance and you have any thoughts, I'd be happy to hear what you think about it. I thought it was quite fascinating. It's only been one season so far, and I'm sure I'll have to wait a year or so for the, the next season, but I thought it was a really interesting show. All right, let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In this segment, I wanted to talk about power. Cue the Kanye song. Um, because of this book that I read on system error about big tech and things we see when power gets 
concentrated in a few hands, but try to understand again the nuanced ways of I think we should approach looking at how power is distributed or what that even means and the issues that come up with power. So again, it's not a black and white thing that everyone shares every part of power equally or that um, only a few people should have that. So for example, if you go on a plane, you don't want everyone to equally fly the plane or have equal opportunity to fly the plane. You want the person who has that expertise to, to fly the plane, the, the education training and um, experience of doing that. And so when we have situations in life, for example, we have to have people who have expertise or who have some level of proficiency do what they do. The issue with power that I see happening is throughout history and currently still, when you are in a position that gives you some level of either authority or some level of having some control, it comes with a certain status that usually means you get things for it. So you are the president, you get treated with a certain type of respect that other people don't. And some of that can exist, but we would be much better off if we recognize that when someone is given a position of power, it should be seen as a position of service, of serving other people. And to begin with, power does corrupt. We would like for it not to, but I think there's a lot of wisdom in that quote of, absolute power corrupts absolutely. When we don't have any uh, checks and balances on things, things become corrupt. We'd like to hope that it wouldn't be the case, but unfortunately that's what we see time and time again. So when people have any kind of power, it needs to be checked by others, by the systems, but also by themselves. So when we get power, we have to be very mindful of that certain positions of power. One of the classic ones that comes to mind with this is a parent. So when you become a parent, you have, of course, a very unequal relationship with your child who was born completely helpless and dependent on you for even several years, much more than any other mammal. Our young are helpless, are altricial. They need our taking care of to even survive. So we have a very imbalanced system there where the parents take care of the kids, so that's also imbalanced that they give a lot more than they get. But of course, they have a lot of power in this relationship. And so what I've seen and what I advise parents to do is you have to be mindful not to become a dictator, which I know sounds silly or it sounds like, well, of course not. But it's a lot easier said than done because you are prone to go into that when you have this ability to have so much impact and influence with really no checks. We have certain checks from like a government standpoint of Department of Child and Family Services when things become abusive and things get to that point. But in general, parents are given this type of, it's, it's a type of dynamic where they have a lot of freedom and there isn't a lot of checks. I see this, you know, one time I was at, uh, this is before the pandemic, I remember years ago and it really hit me. I was really irked by the way this mother was talking to her child. And you could see that it was not that she was trying to uh, help her child grow. She was trying to say, no, you can't do this. But you could just feel how much she was enjoying the power she had, that she was telling the child what he could or could not do and why and explaining it in this way that made it seem like it had reasoning, but really it was just she wanted to have her way. And in that moment, I felt so much this injustice of how the parent has to be mindful of this. It's a position that is, I think, the most noble position we have in a relational sense to be a parent, but we have to be mindful to not abuse that power that can 
come with it, that can come with having that type of station and situation. And so when you have a child, uh, this is from Khalil Gibran, you don't own your child, you owe your child. So it's not that the child is your possession, but that actually you are to serve your child as the parent. You've been given this position, you have this, and of course, as a parent, you've created it yourself, you've even created your child, but now you are the one that is serving the child. You owe them, not you own them. But it's very easy to fall into that because you do make the rules. When you're the one that makes the rules and controls what happens and doesn't happen, it of course can feel like you have some kind of power or status that should feel good. But when we recognize the power is in service of some other good, that's when it can have a beneficial impact. So it goes back to even how I look at success as not about what you get, but what you give. So you have a position of power so you can give more, you can help more, you can take care of in a better way. The teacher has the power over the classroom to serve the interests of all the children. And this can be difficult when there's many children, different needs, different things going on, but they're using that power for the benefit of the children, not because it feels good, not because they want to have a power trip and feel good about themselves. And again, this is something that we naturally go towards. When we have power and we don't have certain consequences, we tend to abuse that power in some way. So a parent is given this great responsibility and does have that great power, but it should be seen as how can I serve my child by being a parent? And so when I say this, it doesn't mean you are a servant in the sense that you let people walk all over you or even let your kids walk all over you and there doesn't have to be respect. You can't see yourself as a servant in the sense that you're serving, but not in the sense that you now debase yourself or put yourself below. And some parents do that. They think, well, because I don't want to have this power over them or because my children are the ones who should have the power, they, they completely ne neglect themselves or they don't actually assert themselves enough in the service of their child. If you don't have any rules in your home and you think that's because I don't want to be a dictator or a tyrant, so I have no rules, that's not going to help your child. They need to feel there is some strong sense of stability and base in their home. They do need to learn certain things and consequences about life and experiences that will happen in order for them to grow. So as I was saying, I prefer the nuance. It's not to go the other way that you should completely have no power or say or make everything equal and democratic from the first moment, it's not going to work. You as a parent have to take some level of assertiveness of taking on that role. But you have to be so mindful not to go the other way. It's just natural. Who's going to make the bedtime? You get to make the bedtime or decide what your child eats or doesn't eat. And if you're not mindful of it, you will likely take on that power, especially if you are feeling smaller or not as good in other aspects of your life. So when you go to work and you feel like your boss is picking on you or being unfair towards you, you're much more likely to go home and do that with your kids because now you feel like this is where I have the power. So this is where we see the systems affect one another. But when we look at power as a thing you use and abuse and use to your benefit, we recognize how it can become harmful. But we recognize that power and authority is used to helping others. How can I serve others? We have a very different perspective on it. We can look at the same thing as, for example, a medical doctor who get a certain status or prestige for being 
that role or having that profession, some of which we can understand. Sometimes it probably will go too far, especially in certain cultures, including our own. But nonetheless, it is something that can be very good. But when a doctor goes to school, we could see two different paths. And this goes to when I had uh, Payam Vanifaz on the show. Monday, we talked about this. Uh, for example, a singer could go to become a singer because they want money and fame and all the things that come with it for them, what they get. Or they could want to share their gift with other people of music that might connect them, might make them feel things, might bring them together, or make them feel joy, whatever it might be. That's something they want to give. Someone could go to medical school because they want to get money, they want to get prestige. In our culture, you can go to, in Iranian culture, you go to medical school and become a doctor. Now you know you have certain things that come with that. And so you might go for those reasons, the approval, the validation, the compensation, and the status that you get. And it's hard to say we're not going to care about those things. I understand that. However, if you can recognize I'm going to learn to actually empower myself to help other people, to me, this would be the mindset we would want to strive more towards. I want to learn about this treatment because I might save someone's life or reduce their pain and their suffering to give that to them. That's a very different mindset than I'm going to go get this degree and then everyone's going to look at me a certain way and I get certain things. And I recognize that that's always going to be there. Even the singer that says they want to share their gift, it's not that they don't like the fame and the money and things that might come with it. We don't want to fool ourselves in that way to think that that's the goal or that's what we're trying to achieve is some level of not caring about those things. Um, of course, we're going to care about those things and they can be there. You'll even feel good when you have those parts. But what is the thing that is driving you? What's the intention of what you are doing or the more overwhelming attention? Just like when you do something nice for someone. I know people say you shouldn't care at all about how they react, but of course you're going to. You want to make that not the reason you do it. If you're giving them something just because they're going to like you or give you something back, that's very different from you do something out of kindness because you want to do something for them. And when they respond kindly and appreciatively, it feels good. It shouldn't be that, no, it shouldn't feel good when they say thank you and have a nice smile on their face. Of course, that's going to feel good. To me, actually, we can almost look at those as separate things. Your intention is one thing. And you have a feeling about that, that I think this is the right thing to do, to do this kind thing. And then you also have a feeling about how they respond, whatever that might be. If they didn't respond kindly or if they rejected it or they made you feel like they didn't care about what you did, of course, you'll have a feeling about that. And now you'll process that and see, is that going to impact what you do in the future? If you genuinely think what you did was still kind and the right thing to do, hopefully you'll keep doing it, even though you have a feeling about how they responded. So I know sometimes people say, well, if you got upset about what they did or if you kept track of it or knew it means it wasn't out of kindness, I don't actually agree with that. I think it's more complicated. Of course, you're going to care about how someone responds. Um, I hear this about, for example, um, serving food to people and they might not respond in a certain way. Let's say giving food to um, someone who is homeless and, oh, they rejected the food and that's why I shouldn't do it. It's like, well, if you think what you did is right, of course, you're going to have a feeling that they rejected the food but hopefully it won't discourage you from helping others if you think it's the right thing to do. So when you come back to positions of power or status or things that people have, it's understandable that it's going to have a, an impact on how we see people, how people get treated. We can sometimes give them some kind of treatment that's different. I always have issue with how much 
we give people when they have positions of power. And we see this throughout history, and I think it's becoming less, where certain people had power and prestige and status, and because of that, they were treated well, whereas most other people were not. They were not given that type of a power or some type of uh, even privileges of basic privileges of life, and that is not okay. And I think we're moving more away from that. I think it's related to even things like the concentrations of wealth, which of course is very much linked to power and the things and possibilities that we have, that we do better as a society when it's more egalitarian. And even when you mention that, people go into this, well, you're saying everyone has exactly the same power and exactly the same everything? No. But we want to move away from the extremes of these things, extremes of the wealth and poverty, extremes of power, where some people have power and some people don't. And when we think of a democracy, when we have that ideal, that ideal includes that we share the power in that way. Everyone gets a vote. And this is something we've moved towards, even in the United States, was first white men, not even just white men, white land-owning men could vote. And slowly it's changed to include all uh, people over time, men, women, of di- and then of different races. We've had to make progress to go towards that ideal that we recognize is the way to go, which I think we still have a ways to go as far as balancing power. But when we have things concentrated in certain Uh, individuals and only in those individuals we have issue and again I hope we can move away and recognize that the benefit of having people have certain power or authority is that they do it in the service of others rather than what they get out of it we affect also who wants those positions because if you get a position of power that makes you then get everything and you can treat people poorly and all that well the wrong people go towards it but if you create positions of influence or positions where you can make an impact where people are held to a standard of helping others rather than what they get, it's going to draw other people as well. These things are very complicated. I understand it could be simplified in how I'm bringing it up. My intention here is to consider the mindset when we look at society at large, but then also looking at your own life, recognizing that, yes, it feels good to have power. Power comes control. When you have control, you feel better that you can predict the outcome, you can predict what's going to happen, you can make sure what you want happens in a variety of ways from getting the needs that you have met, also your preferences and all those types of things. So it's understandable, but being aware that we are very much going to, very easy to be abusing that power, no matter who you think you are, that you think I'm not a power hungry person, I'm not someone who cares about these things, we all get impacted and influenced when we get some power, we see it happen. And we have to try to keep ourselves in check I think as a society, we should keep those checks and balances. But as an individual, we have to reflect on that. Think about even a scenario you walk into where you have the upper hand. How are you going to use that? Is it going to be to take advantage and to get what you want? Or is it in the service of others and taking care of them? Valuing and cherishing that position that you have to help rather than to get and to take. All right, let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. Let's go to a caller now. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, Dr. Farid. Hi, thanks for calling. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I just uh, wanted to let you know about a little bit about myself before I tell you what my issue is. Okay. Um, I'm 54 years old. I've been divorced twice. 
and I had two kids, 24 and 27, mm-hmm. and my daughter lives with me. Um, I have a recurring issue, um, and I, I really don't know how, I know kind of what the root of it is, but every time I know it, that doesn't help me in <laughs> not getting into yep. another situation. Um, so I quickly, when I meet somebody, um, and I kind of hit it off with him, you know, or he seems attractive to me, um, I quickly form emotional attachment to that person um, to the point that even that person even thinks about moving away or you know, any kind of little indication that he's not gonna be there, that makes me feel like I'm just gonna, you know, it's, it's like death to me. Mm. Um, you, recently, know, yeah. you know, even that language yeah. you use there, I think it's powerful and it, it can sound exaggerated, but there's something true in that because you said it feels like death to me. And so yeah. when we look at attachment, we're, we create attachment bonds as humans and, and mammals. It's the sense that we want to be connected to those people we're dependent on because without them, we don't live. So a baby does feel attached in a healthy way to their parents because they need that. And so when we fear losing that, we can have a fear of abandonment even in older age. There's a sense of we die without that person. And you can recognize that you too quickly get attached. But when it's happening, we can look at that. It it seems like it's hard to stop it or it could feel like this time it's real uh, or there's something you're going away from within yourself, some pain or some emptiness that you are seeking so much to get away from that you are jumping at any opportunity to create that type of a a connection. And you said, you know, something yourself that you know, you think you know the root of it, but it doesn't take it away, which is often the case. First, we don't even know why we're doing most of what we do, but then we become aware of it or we can become aware of it. But it doesn't mean now that I know I can stop it because the feelings are still there. So you can know that your fear of heights comes from this one time where you had a bad incident with heights or something, but it doesn't mean now when you're going to be in heights again, you're not going to be afraid. That fear and that feeling will still be there. So if you can tell me, what do you think is the root of this when you say you think you know where it's coming from? Well, I I, I feel that uh, ab- abandonment issues, mm-hmm. fear of abandonment, uh, it's a huge thing and it keeps on happening. Um, uh, I know I had uh, an alcoholic father and uh, depressed mom mm. when growing up and uh, I grew up very um, very much alone because I was the last of five and there was a huge age difference so I pretty much grew up like the only child and um, I lived in my own imagination for a long, mm-hmm. uh, lot of years yeah um, so I think that that has something to do with it. I sure. mean, I think that that's the only thing I could come up with that has an issue. Well, know? that's and that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, the way, the way you said it, first of all, your father being alcoholic, mother being depressed, age difference, so the siblings you weren't as close, and then also if there's an age difference, your parents were older when they, they had you, but it seems like they were not so available. Um, and I was talking before about avoidance and and, and those types of things, but often we go as a child you learn to go to this fantasy world to survive because life was too painful it wasn't giving you what you needed and it seems like you may may still be going there when you're meeting someone you quickly go into that fantasy of kind of like a happily ever after this is your prince charming and they're going to 
make you feel good. And it's this yeah. that young girl who never got what she wanted and she still is thinking in this this fantasy type of way and it's hard for you to stop it. Also you might when it's happening it's almost like you don't want to stop it because you want it to be true or there could be this feeling that she didn't get what she wanted ever so she deserves what she wants so why would we stop her but unfortunately you're hurting yourself hurting her you know this inner child in the same ways and you might even be pushing people away this is often what happens when people have a fear of abandonment like a lot of our anxieties we uh, they become self-fulfilling prophecies because if you're afraid someone is going to abandon you and then at any moment they're giving you some space you freak out you might actually push them away because they get overwhelmed they don't know and then unfortunately it feels to the person that it's confirming see people go away you can't trust people you can't rely on them not realizing that the fear itself was creating the the bad results you wanted to avoid you know right and and the latest one uh if i can tell you sure. what happened um, well, we were in this religious group, you know, of activities. We would see each other every week as a group. And I started to have feelings for this person. For this person. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, um, any little move that he would make, uh, in my mind, I thought, okay, this is because he's interested in me. Um, you know, he would stay afterwards and talk for hours with me and, um, you know, say, you know, how happy he was that he's getting to know me and and all these things, and um, he created this close bond with my daughter, you know, friendship, and um, so I started to have these feelings, but I was so afraid of, you know, um, and one time I heard that he might be moving away, that's when I really, really panicked, and I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die if this person Mm. moves away. And then um, I finally had to confront him that I have uh, very strong, uh, I mean, I feel that, I mean, this is after we had hours of conversation regarding a book that we read together and so forth. Uh, so I, I confronted him and I told him that um, I feel like we have a strong connection. And uh, he said that, oh, yeah, I, I also feel that, but um, because I just came out of a very bad relationship. And he gave me the whole story about this one a woman that she kept going and coming back, going after a few months, disappearing, coming back, even though they were engaged. Um, last time she left was September, and uh, he's still healing from that. Mm. So I, I said, okay, that's fine. I totally, you know, understood what what was happening, and I, you know, I left it at that. Until, like, um, afterwards, I felt like he's more distant all of a sudden. And he's not as friendly as before. He's not trying to discuss any, you know, and we used to have these really deep conversations about different things like um, movies we watched or books that we read. But he stopped doing that. And um, he seemed very, very cold and distant until um, one event that I saw that he's with this other woman um, who's like 23 years younger than him. And she even had, you know, and he's like 63, and this one was like 38, and these little two boys, and he's, he was so happy and, you know, playing with them and saying how much he loves kids and all these things. And I, after that, I felt like I cannot be in any place that he is. I, mm-hmm. you know, I even quit those activities that he was also there because it was just painful mm-hmm. to see him. 
Okay. You know, it's, it's, and that woman was not the woman from before. I don't know that. I we never got okay. to ask him. I wanted to ask him at some point, but then I didn't want him to okay. feel like, oh, you know. So, you know, it's clearly was very painful what you went through. Um, it does seem like even the relationship part of it, although you were talking, it was unclear what was going on. Some of that you were likely leading in your head too, probably going ahead, I'm assuming, as well about what was going on. So, you know, there was that part that we want to be aware of that what can happen is we're also so afraid of rejection that we don't give ourselves a chance to have what we want. And so you might keep it in your head rather than actually see what can really be there. So this is likely an issue you're going to see come up in lots of areas of your life of going into your head and living it out there more than in reality. And then you won't end up getting what you want in reality, unfortunately. But, you know, when you told me he pulled back after you had that conversation with him, um, I could understand that was didn't feel good to you. Um, and especially with the feeling of abandonment and the anxiety you have when it comes to attachment, it was not pleasant. If he had asked me for advice, I would have told him that's probably the right thing to do because clearly you're showing that you have feelings for him, that it's not just some, a friendship or platonic. And so for him to communicate more with you and get closer with you at that same level likely would not be the right thing to do. So um, that part, I understand that you felt that distance, but... I think that makes sense that he did that. I think you took that as a rejection or you took that as him yeah. pulling back or, you know, he, you know, maybe you took it personally, but I think that would make sense to do that, to pull back. Now then seeing him with someone else, we don't know if this was the person from before. Um, I could see how that obviously also brought up feelings of being replaced, being rejected, that were not pleasant and you just could not even help but, uh, being around him. But I think what yeah. we also have to look at is this strong feeling you have towards him that's also the part where i want you to see your responsibility in letting it become what it became so it seems like i don't know how how long did that last this feeling of friendship and connection that you had where you were talking to each other like two three months okay and that's not an incredibly long time but it's you know a little bit of time but um i don't know what the setting was but you might have felt anxious about bringing up something about you and him but I would hope you would have done that if we look back. Uh, and let me ask you, if you could have done things differently, if anything, what would you do differently? Um, Behavior-wise? Well, any, anything. If you could go back, is there anything you would do differently in this situation? No, I cannot think of a thing. Okay. Maybe emotionally I wouldn't build up something in my head or keep on reminding myself that this could be just my imagination. I mean, other people around us, I think that they help feeding this fire, saying, oh, yeah, we can see something's going on. And, you know, this, this was just not my own thinking. Other mm -hmm. ones around me were making comments. Well, I'll say this. I mean, they, uh, not that they were doing this, but most people, you know, I think people like things to happen. Well, well, let me put it this way. We have our own fears of taking action, but when it comes to other people, we like to see things happen. So most people, if you ask them, like, yeah, maybe there's something there, maybe talk to them, do something, do something about it. You know, everyone will say, yeah, go ask that person out, but they themselves might 
be anxious about it. So you ask them, like, yeah, yeah, you know, there's something and there's a friendship. And there could have been. I think you brought up a good point. One is being aware of it's hard to stop those daydreams at times. I don't know if you did that, if you imagined you and him and what it could be like. Yep. But we often go there. And that, you know, goes back to as you recognize yourself, your own tendency since childhood to live in that fantasy world was the safe escape. And if you do that, yeah, we start to create these experiences. And even although we know they're not real, we feel them when we daydream them, daydream them, and they become part of our feeling about that person. So uh, this is why, you know, someone could see a celebrity that they've never met before, but they have a relationship in their head in a way, right? Because of what they've imagined in their head, even if nothing has happened in between them. So you likely did some of that, which I think is a good point to recognize. I, you have to be very mindful of that because daydreaming feels like a safe drug, but it really is like a drug. In minimal amounts, of course, we're all going to do it here and there. That's fine. And even it could be good to look at what's coming up there. But if we take them too far, it can be a drug that distracts us from reality and does even have negative consequences because it could change how we feel about something that might not be connected to that the reality of what we're going through. So that's something you have to be aware of. Even sometimes it's called pathological daydreaming when we daydream too much or it can be harmful. So daydreaming seems innocuous, it seems safe, but it can have harms for us and for some people more than others, something you want to be aware of. The other thing I, so I basically... What do you do practically? What are some practical things that you can do when you feel it coming? Well, you, you know, you, this is where mindfulness is, is important of coming back to the moment. So, you, you know, you, you imagine you and this person, oh, you know, we're going on a date here, or this is happening, whatever it is, and you have to stop yourself. Like, okay, look... Because it feels good. That's why it's hard. That's why I'm saying it's like a drug. It feels so good to go there, and it's your comfort zone, and you've gone there. And for everyone, it feels good. But for you, it could be even a stronger feeling and a stronger tendency. You have to counteract that. You know, you have to stop yourself and say, I know it feels good to think about him and me together, but let me come back. And even more than that, okay, let's see if I can make this daydream a reality to see if it's there. And that was the other thing I was... I even kind of started suggesting it, but then wanted to ask you what you think, but bringing up things even sooner. For most people, I think that's a good thing. Again, easier said than done, but especially for you, because you're saying you have this tendency to go too far ahead in your own head, that I would want you to, you know, just share something of, hey, you know, this seems to be something that we have, or I feel like there's a connection. Would you like to, you know, and seeing what's there, which is scarier it's always safer to let it stay in your head, but then you create yeah. these situations. So it's something that I think it was good that you brought it up after what, however many months. That was good, but possibly you could have mentioned it earlier, let's say. That might have been something to look at that approach um, before it kept getting built up in your head. Mm -hmm. So do you think that keeping away from him so that I don't see him is a good idea or I should have continued and fuck it out or well, deal with it? I mean, I think, you know, it's you have to decide what's making sense for you. It does seem like you have an anger towards him, like there was a betrayal, um, which likely is going to be related to betrayals from your parents that you felt. And so... Something that's also important is we can have an awareness of what happened, but healing that is very different from just knowing about it. So it's like, oh, yeah, maybe I feel abandoned because my parents, you know, for these reasons you shared. But going into those feelings and healing it in your own inner work, but of course, even better to do it with a therapist, that can help lead to some healing. And it's not that it's just going to go away. Likely you'll still be there, but it might be less hot, those feelings that might make it easier for you to, to go into something else. And so what's going to be important for you is to pursue also someone where it's clear from the beginning what's going on. 
you know we do meet people in activities we do and that that's good so it's not to say don't look for that at all but in this situation it created the possibility for you to keep dreaming and daydreaming about it in your head which for you can be quite dangerous because the way you feel is like he betrayed you even though there was no relationship or no commitment there but to you it almost you seems know, like he's cheating that on you i feel betrayed doctor mm -hmm. is that um he, he clearly was in a relationship with this woman and for him to kind of be deceitful or dishonest to tell me that oh i haven't healed from my last that's why i'm not gonna uh, you know pursue anything with you mm -hmm. i felt very betrayed and and light okay well there yeah i was wondering what you meant by the deceitful it's possible we don't know the details of what was going on if it was still this person that then came back into his life you know i don't know the details of what was going on there obviously and you don't either to know what was going on it does seem like the betrayal was more than that i get the sense you feel like you and him had something um, which you did have something these connections these conversations hours afterwards you felt misled in some ways and and i wouldn't say you're completely off the mark to think that it seemed like there was something there to spend hours after some kind of gathering uh, talking to one another that seems like something it doesn't necessarily mean it's romantic for sure but it's not uh, out of line that you thought there could be some interest or mutual interest you know, there. The fact that he, he was asking me if I was single, okay, you know, and uh, then going through the story of his divorces, his relationships, and, yeah. you know, sharing all that with me. I didn't think that you, you just share these things with someone that you have zero interest in. Po well, possibly. You, know, you, you so could with a friend or, a you know, someone you're connected with now i'm at the uh we're a little bit past the commercial break i want to continue a bit to to kind of go into some of these feelings that you're having of hurt which we, we don't want to ignore um so okay. we're gonna put you on hold and we'll bring you on after the break okay okay thank you all right we'll be right back welcome back before the break we were with the caller let's go back to them now caller are you still there Yes, I'm okay. here. Thank you. Sure. So, you know, the before we went to the break, you were talking about the ways you felt hurt or betrayed uh, in this um, interaction with this gentleman, that he was asking you questions or pursuing things in a way that you felt like expressed that he was interested in more than just a friendship, but then made it seem like that's not what he was, was looking for. So tell me more about that yeah. betrayal or that feeling that you felt he was deceitful. Tell me more about that. So... You know, the reason that I stopped going to that activity that he's also there, because, um, you know, I, 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 I kept seeing him on the phone. You know, I felt like, oh, he must be texting her. Mm -hmm. And, um, it, you know, and it's funny in that discussion, in that study group that we have, it, it has to do with marriage and relationships. Mm. And um, I had to blur. I, had, I was trying to find a way to... to bring out my, you know, <laughs> relieve my anger, get it out of my system. And I would say, yeah, you know, men are uh, <laughs> mostly just interested in um, the looks of the woman, you know, and uh, how skinny she she is, because that the only thing I could see with that woman and I would be like, she's super, I'm not overweight, but, you know, for her, she's super, super skinny and is 23 years younger than him. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I felt like if I continue going, I'm going to blur out in front of everyone and make myself embarrassed because I just couldn't hold back. And, I, you know, I couldn't 
keep it inside, you know, how uh-huh. ang- angry I am. At some point afterwards, I wanted to text him and ask and tell him how dishonest he has been with me. And um, he wasn't just ready for a relationship. He was already in a relationship, but I had to stop myself. Hmm. Okay. So, look, you're, you're angry. We want to understand your anger, and then mm-hmm. you can decide how to act on that anger, uh, hopefully in some way that will lead to it not being held on to in this way that, because right now it's hurting you, it's also hurting that even these activities that you might enjoy going to, you're not going to. And it doesn't mean you have to go immediately. You know, you might need a little bit of time. But go more into that anger. So you're saying he, you feel he, It's. I get the sense you feel like he led you on and lied to you. Yes. Like he led you on and showing he's interested in you and having something with you in those conversations. And then when you brought up the conversation, he was not honest in saying where he was at. Exactly. The next day then I texted him after that phone conversation, I said, thank you so much for trusting me and sharing some, mm-hmm. you know, your past with me. And uh, he was appreciative. He said, yes, um, you know, I'm so, um, uh, thank you so much for listening to me. Uh, we're going to always have this two-way converse, you know, communication, honesty with each other. Mm-hmm. So that itself made me feel like okay we have moved up in our friendship but then afterwards after the next time we saw each other in a few days he was completely uh, cold and distant Hmm. well we don't know what happened in those days if he if again this person was from his past that came back that he was talking about if it was someone new but so you you felt like that conversation clearly crossed a boundary for you and your relationship from your side it wasn't clear we can't say that you and him entered some kind of relationship at all it was just a conversation that could have even been two friends having a close relationship or a close friendship or conversation but anyway you took that as something that meant more than that um so i think that's why there was this huge betrayal you felt that because it almost the way you talk about it is this feeling that he cheated on you like there was some kind of betrayal in that level exactly yeah which I, I you know I might have issues with uh, with trust also. Okay. Um, because growing up, my dad used to cheat on my mom, mm. and my mom used to always tell me, "Men cannot be trusted." I have seen your dad going with this other woman. Mm. Um. So she she would share those things with me. Yeah, well, and that's going to make you even more vigilant about. Um, when we talk about abandonment, it's also about you have to make sure the person doesn't go, doesn't leave yeah. completely or also, you know, betray you in some way. So you're going to be even more anxious about having the person, um, which might lead to pushing them away or imagining having them before you have them. Because in your mind, he's perfectly loyal and perfectly there for you. But then uh, we don't know what's happening yet in reality. Uh, so. There's, there definitely is something there. What what happened in your marriage, by the way? I know we haven't touched on that yet, but how did that? What led to the divorce there? The first divorce, you know, the father of my kids. Um, it was a ten years marriage. He was very mentally uh, abusive, uh, so he would, you know, get angry and he would break the walls, break anything that he saw. Um, so he had a lot of temper issues. Um, the second one. After a few years of being divorced, um, because my kids were so young and I was so tired of, you know, handling all of that, um, I married someone 
after knowing them for one year, and then that person became, was uh, found out that he was very, very abusive emotionally, uh, abusive to me and my kids, and also he was a porn addict. Mm-hmm. Um, I later on found out that all of those, you know, sick um, behavior that he had, it had to do with um, his addiction. So I ended up after 10 months of marriage. Okay. Um, so unfortunately, you can see there's a pattern of the men you've been attracted to, that they are abusive. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned your father being an alcoholic and you know, che- uh, cheating on your mom, and I don't know how he treated her in general, but it doesn't seem like you're painting a good picture so far. Yeah. So it, it, there is this expectation you have of men that's not good, um, and also an anger you have towards men because of what you went through. And so it does seem like you're creating those same experiences in some way. Yeah, I, I I do feel that I, you know, it's and normally I'm I'm choosing men that um, I have realized that recently that I'm somehow attracted to men who are emotionally unavailable mm-hmm. or broken. Yeah, uh, and again, this is one of those where the awareness doesn't change it because you're going to feel this attraction even if you're aware of it. But this is where you know you're talking about being proactive. Um, we were talking about being aware of the daydreaming and not letting yourself go down that path. You also have to be aware of who you get attracted to. Because the problem is, right now when you're talking to me in this logical way, it's very easy to make sense of it. But if you meet a man and you feel that way, you're just going to feel like, no, no, but this guy makes me feel amazing. And I feel so good. And I want to be with him. Or this time it's right. you know. And that's that's the hard part, is that when you feel it, it feels real. It's the same thing we have with anxiety, where people will say, oh, I, I worry too much about this stuff and nothing ever happens. And then the next time they're anxious, like, no, no, but this time it could be the real thing, you know, and it, it freaks them out. So it, it's very easy to think about it. But when we feel it in the moment, unfortunately, it still feels as real, even with that awareness at times. So you do have to hit the brakes a lot on yourself with this, where when you find yourself attracted to someone, unfortunately, you have to it's almost like doing an audit to see are they in any way like these men you know from the past these broken or unavailable men in some way and even this man you're talking about now it seems like there was some blurriness about how available he was you know um was he still with this woman was he not even he said what he told you explicitly was i'm not emotionally available right now for a relationship and we don't know i don't know if he's in a relationship with this woman that you mentioned you saw him with maybe he is but nonetheless he was I not emotionally available of him uh-huh. I, I saw a picture of him and his uh, and her kids on on her phone lock. Uh, okay. Screen. Yeah. Okay. That I, I I can sense the the betrayal in your voice when you say that. How you you know that must oh, have been gosh, hurtful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he, and her calling him darling. You know this yeah. darling dad. Uh, it it keeps on replaying my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the more I hear it. The more angry I get, I even became, this is kind of sick, um, I became friends with her on Facebook mm-hmm. to just find out what does she have that I don't have. Well, it's the, kind of like comparing. Yeah, well, uh, and I'm glad you're, you know, you acknowledge that is very, uh, you, you knew it was not a good thing, but you felt driven this way to figure more out. And, and I think this is not something that you need to solve in the sense of like why he did we don't even know what he did but in your mind you've already told yourself a story that 
um, this man was interested in me, but this more appealing woman came along and he wanted her over me and I'm somehow not enough. And I have to find out how I'm not enough because then maybe I can solve it. And also there's exactly. definitely some, you know, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. You kind of want to be able to snoop on her and see what's going on. Uh, so, you know, you're doing that as well. But the, the, the truth is your father and mom treating you the way you, they did was never because you were not enough. And your ex-husbands being emotionally abusive was not because you were not enough. It was in a way because you thought you were not enough that you accepted and, and expected these types of relationships. So that's the part where yeah. you're, you're not enough is in how you think of yourself, but not who you actually are. That, that's a very good point that you uh, be not feeling enough, being enough. Yeah. I mean, I have uh, my friends always point out to me all the things that I've accomplished by myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I just moved to a completely different state. I, I was able to again start, you know, buy a house again, you know, to start all fresh in such a short time. And all my life I have really done well. But mm -hmm. it's just that I feel like, okay, what else do men want? I have lost 30 pounds. I am well-educated. I have very high-paying job, you know, and I, I'm very independent. What is it that men want? Do they want some, because this woman works in a, like, a uh, salon. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, this is what they are looking for? A woman who is not well-educated, who is not doing well? well? Am I supposed to not yeah. go back to that? You know, and even there's an anger in how you talked before you got to that point, which obviously you're angry about her, but just a, it, it feels unfair and you're right. But that feeling is more in your head than the reality. And you're giving this man, we can see so much power that he's a spokesperson for all human males, you know, that men want people who work in salons more than you, you know, and that's not the reality, but because he, you got so attached to him, it's just like how we are with our parents. It's like they define our world, but he's defining the whole world for you of what men want and what they're looking for and you not being enough. And so mm -hmm. your anger is going to be there for a while, but what we have to look at is underneath there is a pain and a wound about yourself and how you were treated from childhood that led to you feeling this way. And that's a much longer term type of a thing. And unfortunately, I also think because you feel like you're not enough, you're more likely to avoid making things real because you're afraid of the rejection that that's going to be the reality, that if there's a man you want, he's not going to want you. So you might be afraid to make it more real. Now, you did with this person, I think it was very good that you brought up that conversation with him. You could have avoided that much longer too. So as much as I said you could have said it sooner, Easily, you could have waited longer, and it probably would have been worse uh, still. So that was good, but I, I get the sense that you might not uh, believe that a man who's going to love you and treat you well will want you. So you're kind of in this catch-22, where it's like men are bad, and so you go towards bad men, but then even if there's a good man, you might not believe it, or you might not believe that they're going to want you. So mm -hmm. it, it's, it puts you in a tough place of how do you find that relationship that you logically would want for yourself, you might not think it's either there, like are there men like that from what your father did and what your mom told you about men and what you experienced, and then you might not know if they would want you if they were that good. So So how do you get over that? Yeah, good luck. I don't <laughs> it, it's, <laughs> it's it's a lot of work. But the first step is what you're doing is figuring it out. I you know, it's an easy thing to say go to therapy. I would highly recommend that because what you're dealing with are deeper issues that our conversation, I hope, opens your eyes and opens some doors, 
but that you're going to have to walk through and do the work that has to be done there because it's a longer term thing than you can get, you know, again, it's that feeling. I can say you're good enough and you can say, yeah, I'm good enough. And then you go into an experience and you're not going to feel good enough. And it's hard to just shake that, you know. So, yeah, yeah, affirmations and things can work, journaling. And there's lots of things you can do, activities. But these are deeper things that you've been carrying for, you know, several decades that you're not Mm going to just unwind uh, you know, quickly on your own. So I would recommend yeah. long-term therapy, meaning like six months, year, more than that, yeah. um, if you haven't you know already. what I have started to do, I listened to a TED Talk, and this woman was talking about how after three divorces, she finally uh, figured out that she would marry herself. Mm-hmm. This whole idea of marrying yourself. And she she would date herself and, you know, would... And, and it made uh, a lot of difference in her life and the type of people that she was attracting and the feelings mm-hmm. that she had. Like she would be on a date and think, okay, let me see how I feel about this person. Yeah. It would be before that she would say, oh, let me t- see what he thinks right. about Right, does this me. person like me? Yeah. Exactly. And so yesterday I started doing that. I said, I'm going to go out on a date, you know, with myself. Good. So I did all kinds of things that I enjoy a lot. And I even I even sent a text to myself and saying <laughs> that, oh, I enjoyed spending time with you yesterday. And I would love <laughs> to do that again. <laughs> well, then, and then were you worried the person didn't text back? You know, my, don't, we don't want you to get exactly. <laughs> the fear of abandonment <laughs> might creep in there, too. But, that you know, that's very nice. I think that's great. Keep doing that. You deserve to take care of yourself, to love yourself, date yourself. The one thing when I heard you talking that... I wouldn't want you to go too far into this this path of not realizing what you want is to be with someone. But I think it is very important. We sometimes forget that loving ourselves, everyone says it, it's an easy thing, but actually taking the actions is something different. So that's going to be one step. But, you know, a TED Talk or a talk with me is not going to solve this. It's going to be a much bigger, deeper issue that's going to involve going to those deeper pains that likely you don't want to go to. And really the the place to do that is going to be in therapy where you unravel and unwrap those pains because underneath these fears and these angers is a lot of pain and hurt that you experienced mm-hmm. and so yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been trying so hard so long to find a therapist unfortunately that's one of the I don't know why that is the most difficult thing to find a therapist it can be it can wow. be tough I don't know where you are and I, I we don't have to get into like where you're looking but I would say find someone they're not going to be perfect they're going to be just good enough just like a partner you find and sometimes we can use that as a way of not getting too close to even with a therapist is kind of finding some reason to get away from it so i hope you'll find someone good and good enough they feel like makes you feel comfortable makes you feel like they at least understand you to a degree no one's going to understand any of us perfectly but a level of understanding and then go into a long-term relationship with yourself with the therapist and understanding yourself better because I could just those things are not going to go away and in the meantime yeah keep dating yourself keep doing all these things if you find yourself attracted to someone really take your time and looking at okay could this be the same pattern because it usually doesn't look the same when we're in it it's like this time it feels good and so you might even have to talk to friends and talk to other people to help you and maybe even avoid talking to friends because that makes it more real but i would hope you do that is talk to friends and get their input on it and be mindful that your radar is going to be a little broken for a while which it is for most of us so just be mindful of that okay all right good luck it was nice talking to you it was nice talking to you, Doctor. Thank you so much for spending so much time. Oh, it was with my me pleasure. And me. My pleasure. Have a great day. Take care. Thanks. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. 
welcome back. I wanted to, with these last few minutes for the end of the show, um, some thoughts that came after talking to that woman in the previous two segments and about when we just know about something which is important but knowing does not solve the problem so to begin with we can't fix a problem we don't know about so we have to know it and face it but just knowing what the problem is doesn't fix it either that's the first step is to know and then we have to take the action which can be very difficult and that's usually the harder part and the work with these kinds of things that I was talking about with her of getting attracted to for example the wrong types of people is very very hard because as I was sharing with her, it still feels like something, right? When we're picking a partner or we're picking someone to even date, we listen to who we feel attracted to. And so it's not that we completely override that, but we do recognize that the radar can be off. And an analogy hit me over the commercial break. We can see a similar thing, for example, with what we eat as human beings and what tastes good to us. So we can understand that as human beings, some of the foods or the foods that tend to be unhealthy for us taste good to us, or not that simplistically, but for example, sweet foods, sugar tastes good to us because when our ancestors were, you know, when the first humans evolved, there wasn't a lot of access to those types of foods that were high in sugar. And when they did come across them, it was good for them to load up on them as much as they could because they wanted to preserve themselves, make sure they survive. So it made sense that those foods taste good because they were hard to come by. So in our uh, environment of evolutionary adaptedness, it was scarce, so it made sense to want to have more of that. But now we live in a world where you can have access to sweets uh, very easily that don't take, it doesn't take any energy from you to get it essentially, and you could have an unlimited amount. So it's not scarce in any way, but it still tastes good. So the taste doesn't go away. So it's kind of a similar thing that we can experience when we look at relationships that we're aware that we are attracted to, let's say, the wrong kind of people, especially most of us will recognize a specific wrong type of person, which brings up issues from our past, um, which, you know, to me always made sense. And I saw it and we can see how we want to work through those things. It's unresolved. It feels familiar. And also when we understand how the brain works at familiar things or when we can predict something, it's going to make us feel more comfortable. So something feels right about those kinds of people that are wrong for us. So if we recognize that, unfortunately, it doesn't take away that feeling of attraction that's still there. And that that is the hard part, because as I was sharing with the previous caller, when you feel it, it feels real. When you feel anxiety, you don't feel like, oh, I'm worried for no reason. You feel like I'm worried about something bad that's about to happen. When you feel a fear, you don't think it's just an irrational fear. You feel it if you're actually feeling it, like something uh, is life-threatening or endangering me. I have to go away from it. So that's the hard part is that our feelings obviously feel real to us. That's all they can feel. And so because of that, it can be hard to override that. And we have to do that hard work to override that, meaning that we feel the feelings. So if you feel attraction or something tastes good to you, but then you think about what you want to do with that feeling, which is the part that I always think of as looking at feelings as information, but not making the whole decision. And when it comes to romantic relationships, we do hear advice, which I think makes sense. Things like use your head and your heart. So you want to feel things, but you also have to think about it. And we do have to be mindful of that. To me, it doesn't necessarily take away the romance of it. 
you know, oftentimes when we recognize that what's drawing us to someone is something more pathological, something unhealthy, it doesn't mean our draw to them is something that is romantic or sweet or good. It could be actually coming from a bad place, but it feels good. Just like if we go back a few segments talking about power, to abuse power can feel good to us, but it doesn't mean it's something healthy or good. It's just that it feels good. And so if you're having a lot of sugar, it can feel good when you're tasting it, but it's bad for you. So it doesn't mean the taste isn't there or doesn't taste good, but you override that by realizing this is going to harm me. So in our dating relationships, yes, it can feel like we're taking away some of that passion by saying don't go always for that person that makes you so excited. But what we do tend to see is the people that make us so head over heels instantly. You know, even if we think of if you have that love at first sight feeling, I don't think it's genuine love. But when you have that love at first sight feeling, what's happening is it's not about that person that's in front of you only. They're triggering something from your past. That's why you can have so much feeling for someone that you're just meeting. It makes sense in that way. It's not just because of who they are and what they're expressing because you don't even know them yet. Clearly, they're triggering something from your past that makes you think you're so in love with them. So when you have that feeling as amazing it can feel, it feels so exciting, it brings up all these intense emotions, you might already feel like you know them, you're connected to them, we do have to be a bit cautious. We do have to be aware of overriding or at least questioning that a bit. Can it be taking away the romance, the passion? It might seem that way. But in my opinion, it's more about creating a relationship that's going to be more genuinely having a fire rather than just going towards anything that feels hot which might actually burn us in the end. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. Um, as always, thank you. You know, anyone who calls in, I always appreciate the vulnerability. They have to share their story with us. We all learn with them and through them. So thank you to the caller today. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. Hope you have a wonderful day.